0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, and I'm Tracy McRae. Lung cancer continues to cause more deaths than any other cancer. What's behind this persistent disease, and what's being done to increase the odds of early detection and survival?
2: Screening is really a, an exciting part of lung cancer management. Now, they showed in this study that CT scan reduced the mortality by 20%. That hasn't been shown in prostate cancer, colon cancer, or breast cancer.
3: Also on the program, there's silent, odorless and invisible and each can cause serious illness and death three household health hazards and what you can do to protect against them
1: and pre-diabetes a warning sign that if heated may help you avoid diabetes
3: all that along with this week's health and medical news right after this
1: welcome back to mayo clinic radio i'm dr tom shives and i'm tracy mccray According to the American Cancer Society, by the end of this year, about 225,000, that's close to a quarter of a million new cases of lung cancer, will be diagnosed in this country. The ACS also estimates that about 160,000 people will die from lung cancer this year. Lung cancer continues to be the leading cause of cancer death among both men and women in the U.S., It claims, believe it or not, Tracy, it claims more lives than cancer. The colon, the breast, the prostate, and the ovaries combined. Combined. Combined.
3: Now, that seems like an awful lot of new cases of lung cancer, especially when one of the major risk factors, tobacco use, seems to be declining. We wondered, what's going on? Do cigarette smokers still make up the vast majority of those who get lung cancer? Or are there other causes that are contributing to these high numbers?
1: Here with answers to these questions and an update on lung cancer diagnosis and treatment is Dr. Eric Adele. Dr. Adele is a pulmonary, a lung, and a critical care medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Adele. Nice to see you.
2: Thank you, Dr. Shives.
1: So, still number one on the list of cancers that
2: kill both men and women. It is. It is.
3: But people think it's just a smoker's problem. It obviously is not just a smoker's problem.
2: No, it's not, but it, there's also a tale. We're seeing smoking rates drop, but there's still an awful lot of previous smokers that are there. Secondhand smoking is also not one that we measure and we include in that category because people say they're a never smoker, but we don't have accurate information about the passive smoking exposure as well.
1: I thought if you had quit smoking 15 or more years ago that your lung cancer risk was essentially the same as the general
2: population. Good question. Wrong once you have a significant smoking history sorry tom once you have a significant smoking history that risk never goes completely away it does drop off but it never goes completely away smoking itself causes an injury to the lining of the lungs and changes our genetic a little bit. So that repair, that injury is constantly there, just like the chronic, chronic bronchitis, the emphysema that comes from smoking. The body tries to adjust to it, but it's always there with us.
1: So the risk is what, uh, two or three times the general population, the people who have never smoked?
2: Smokers? Yeah. It's up to Previous nine times. Previous smokers? Previous uh, smokers drops probably two to three times, yes. All right. And if you've quit. Yeah.
1: Mo- more men than, than women, is that Simply because of more men smokers than women.
2: Yes, but women are catching up, just like they are in everything else.
1: And why is that? Why are women smoking?
2: Uh, probably the guys.
1: Because the guys ner- they the- hang
2: out with are smoking. No, we're co- we-, we cause the nervousness that leads to them smoking. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, there's probably uh, some literature on uh, the smoking rates of uh, females, why that is, but I think it's it's, a, it's availability. It's it's they're part of the society as, as much as they now more than ever before. Uh, in the past, they probably were smoking more, maybe didn't admit to it, but the rates of women smoking is going up a little bit even more than what we we can attribute to just, I mean, lung cancer is going up a little bit more than we contribute to just the smoking. Whether that's, again, passive smoking or some other event going on, we don't know. But more women non-smokers are having cancer that we're seeing too.
3: Let's talk about lung cancers. Uh, is one lung cancer just the same as another, or are there different different kinds of lung cancer?
2: That's a good question. They've kept this simple for simple minds like this Kansas boy. (laughs) We classify the primary types of lung cancer into small cell and non-small cell. The vast majority of cancers that we see are non-small cell. And within that category, there are two primary cell types, squamous cell carcinoma and adenocarcinoma. When I started this job, uh, I won't say how long ago, a few years back. <laughs> no, almost did. <dead. laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the vast majority of cancers were squamous cell cancer. Now it's flipped. It was like 60, 60% were squamous cell, 20 or 30% adeno. Now it's flipped. 50 to 60% are adenocarcinoma, and 20% or less are squamous cell carcinoma. Small cell carcinoma is also smoking-related lung cancer, but it's a small portion, and it's more of a systemic disease. We don't manage it with surgery.
1: What do you mean systemic?
2: By the time we diagnose small cell, we think it's throughout the the body. It's in the lymph nodes. It's spread to the liver. We may not identify it, but we know we can't manage even a little nodule of its small cell. We still treat that with chemotherapy. Because we feel that it's passing throughout the body, not just localized.
3: So small cell is, in the world of what's worse, small cell is worse than non-small cell?
2: It depends upon the stage that we diagnose it. There's been tremendous advances for small cell in treatment options. Again, when I started, small cell, you, the average survival was measured in months. Hmm. We're now measuring survival even for a later stage small cell in years because of the advances in treatment.
1: So it does make a difference what kind of cancer you have, and, and you need a biopsy to figure that out. I mean, you can't tell that by the imaging, the CT or the MRI.
2: Not only do, can we not tell by the imaging what type you have, we can't tell that you have it. One of the errors that we make is we'll get, a, we'll get an x-ray, someone will say, that's cancer. You might biopsy the primary lesion. They'll do a PET scan, and they'll say, oh, you have cancer throughout. That needs to be biopsied as well to determine the stage. The most important thing that we can do is stage patients appropriately because that's the opportunity to not only give them the right treatment but to also prognosticate and to help them with what they have.
1: Tell us exactly what you mean by stage.
2: Good question. If you look at the early, we have four stages of lung cancer. The earliest is stage one. Those are primarily managed with all measured by, uh, managed by surgery except small cell. Up to stage two and So some,
1: But that means it's just confined to the lung, nowhere
2: else. That's right. Stage 2 has some peripheral lymph nodes. Stage 3 are lymph nodes in the middle of the chest. And stage 4 is outside the chest. Up to early stage 3, we can still have some operation opportunities or options. Stage 3, late stage 3 and stage 4 is all managed by chemotherapy and radiation. So you mean
1: operation options, surgical options, meaning you could potentially remove all of the disease. That's right. Uh, once it goes past, uh, once it gets to late State, stage three or stage, three. if it's in yes. your liver or your brain That's or, right. or whatever, then
2: there's unique situations where you can have solitary spread, solitary metastases that surgery may be an option. So just but those one, are rare. One spot. One spot. No place else. That's rare, though.
3: Well, let's talk about the screening. How do you screen these patients to find out before you can stage them? You have to find that
2: screening. Screening is really a. a yeah. uh, an exciting part of lung cancer management now because in the old days, we did screening trials and we never showed an effective alteration in the mortality. You know, you have to be careful about survival. That's based upon the time of diagnosis and how people live. But this was a randomized trial looking at CT scans compared to chest x-rays. And they showed in this study that CT scan reduced the mortality by 20%. That hasn't been shown in prostate cancer, colon cancer, or breast cancer to have that kind of reduction in mortality. It's a population of smokers that they looked at between ages 55 and 75, and right now that's being paid for by most insurers in that population, smokers, previous smokers that age, uh, our, our candidates for CT screening. It's a low dose, so the low radiation. Here at Mayo, we have a screening program, and we have a unique program where if you are a smoker, we will provide the CT scan as long as you come to smoking cessation and we get you into a program to try and help you quit smoke. CT is free? Uh, no. Oh. Your okay. insurance will you pay? Said for you said you, yeah. All right. Well, right now, it, we have it so that if, if a person who's smoking, and I think that there's some rationale to this, if they're smoking, and they want to get a screening study, and they don't want to quit smoking. I mean, we want to help them with their health. And
3: motivation, I, yeah, You've
2: yeah, and have I,
1: some motivation.
3: Yeah,
2: so that's a unique program that uh, we're actually hooking the two together. Doesn't mean absolutely, but that's what we're trying to do.
1: So what you're saying is that you have finally proven that doing screening CT scans is effective in reducing the, the number of people who die from lung cancer. That's right. Wow, huge.
3: We're talking about lung cancer with pulmonary and critical care medicine specialist, Dr. Eric Adel. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, myth or matter of fact, some risk factors for lung cancer can be avoided or reduced, while others
1: cannot. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is a lung cancer expert, Dr. Eric Adel of the Mayo Clinic.
3: Myth or matter of fact, Dr. Adele, some risk factors for lung cancer can be avoided or reduced, while others cannot. Is that a myth or is that a fact? Fact. It's a fact. So, what's the best thing? I'm, I'm, I'm sure quitting smoking is the best thing, but what else can people do to help?
1: Oh, I thought that was quitting smoking.
3: <laughs> That's it.
1: It's not that easy, Dr. Adelie. Oh, it's no, not quitting smoking easy. is not that easy. No, no, no. but I mean, uh, in terms of uh, answering the questions, you know, you really have to elaborate sometimes. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: well, I have Give a question. Us a little more it's just information. like coming to the
2: office, <laughs> yeah. you know, black and white.
1: We are
3: periscoping this interview, and one of our periscope viewers has a question. They want to know what about marijuana? smoking. Is marijuana smoking just as dangerous as tobacco smoking?
2: Yes, probably it is, as are electric cigarettes. We're finding out that whatever we can do to avoid inhaling things that hurt our lungs, it's a good idea. The association of marijuana smoking with COPD and lung cancer has been softly shown. I mean, there's not huge studies for this, but yes, the answer would be for sure. We also know that marijuana smokers have a higher rate of smoking cigarettes. Mm. So anything, think about it, you, you know, in Beijing, right? China right now, China is a combination of exploding with tobacco as well as air pollution. They're looking at a major lung cancer epidemic.
1: All right, so we've got on our list smoking number one, far and away, the, the, the biggest risk factor for getting lung cancer. Uh, you mentioned uh, marijuana. You mentioned uh, electronic uh, cigarettes. How about radon?
2: If you look at the evidence for lung cancer in general, that's probably the second largest exposure that we know of that can cause cancers, and particularly lung cancer. The challenge with radon is how much, where is it. Uh, It's very hard to get a quantifiable measure of what it takes to get uh, something like lung cancer, but it is on the list. Do you think it's
1: important to have a radon detector in your home?
2: Uh, if you're in an area where you know has a high rate of radon exposure, it's probably not a bad idea to check it out, particularly if you're having, if you've got houses where people are living in the basement where they could have the highest level of exposure, it's probably not a bad idea. Most areas, I think now, is part of, of the building code that you have radon mitigation already in the house.
1: How do you ever prove that someone's lung cancer was caused by radon
2: exposure? There's, there's no way to.
1: So you're everybody's sort of guessing when they say radon is the number two cause of lung cancer. Yeah,
2: anatomy. it's based upon population studies where you have high radon and you might have a, a population of patients who weren't obvious smokers, so it's an association that they make.
3: We were talking about screening before the break. Um, that's important because it used to be it's, it seems in my head at least that it was just oh someone you you get sick enough and then they discover the lung cancer finding the lung cancer when it's still treatable is the big big change in recent years
2: we make the the most diagnosis from patients who have late stage cancers mm. they come in because of symptoms we're just now starting to see that if we do screen for them we can have a major impact but the vast majority of people who come to me are because of symptoms and they're late-stage cancers. Over 60% that I see in the office are late-stage cancers.
3: So one of our Periscope viewers said one of those early detection, the, the early detection key pieces is key, and what else is increasing? Just screening, that's it? Is that the only thing that's in, that's helping in those early detection?
2: I think it's an awareness of avoiding those known, those known uh, causes of cancer that's still the primary issue with trying to get this reduced. It's, you know, we talked about definite smokers having the risk. It's the secondhand smoke too. You're living in a family, young people, if so you have smoking parents convince them they need to quit smoking for your health and theirs. It's, it's a major issue when we're living in a very tight in the inner cities where you're living in small uh, areas. People are smoking.
1: You're still concerned about secondhand smoke?
2: Secondhand smoke is a big deal. I think a lot of our non-smokers, when, particularly when you look in the Far East, the rate of female lung cancer is rising uh, significantly in Japan places. They're all secondhand smokers. A lot of the men were smoking and the women are getting the lung cancer.
1: So now, finally, it used to be it really didn't matter when you found the cancer. Uh, in general, uh, these patients were going to die. Now, not so much so, and you have proven that if you find it early, you've got some treatment that can actually save people's lives. What is it? What is it you've got now that you didn't have before?
2: Well, from the standpoint of curing cancer or preventing it from causing harm long-term, this word cure is a tough one because we're Hmm. we're all limited in our time on the the globe. But when you look at it, it's no different than early detecting of a breast cancer or a pre-breast lesion, a colon polyp. Uh, someone with a PSA that's going up, a skin cancer that might be picked up early, the earliest you find it, the better you can treat it surgically. We have new options for late-stage cancer that are exciting, but those aren't curative.
3: Let's talk about some of those exciting options. Immunotherapy is one of them.
2: Yeah, I think what we what we need to step back before we get to immunotherapy is to look now what we've done in cancer in general. We're starting to define the the genotype of our cancer. So breast cancer is an example of a cancer that used to be a killer within months to years. Now it's a chronic disease. Even for those that had a very short survival, we now have ter- treatments that look at the genetic, I call them genetic switches. So a cancer has a switch, and they turn it on in our body can't. Fight it. Now we know we can find that switch, turn it off, and our body can now take care of the cancer. Immunotherapy, in particular, is taking our immune system and re- reminding it about some of the anti-immune uh, system features of the cancer. So again, it's very directed at our immune system to fight the cancer directly. So we have targeted therapy, which turns off the switches of the cancer, and then immunotherapy, which ad- and manipulates our system different treatments for different cancers. That's why individualized medicine is becoming so hot.
1: And that's why it's important for you to know exactly what kind of cancer you're dealing with.
2: Precisely. It used to be non-small cell cancer was enough. Now we need to know, is it squamous cell, adenocarcinoma, and in that adenocarcinoma group, does it have a mutation? Does it have a a driver mutation for a targetable lesion, I mean a targetable drug that we can use? Squamous cell cancer, that's the area right now where we're using the immunotherapy. Squamous cell cancer immunotherapy has been shown to extend survival fairly significantly. Not cure, but extend survival.
1: And these are for patients who, aren't surgical candidates. That's right. In other words, they have late stage three or stage four disease. Precisely. But even for those patients, with targeted therapy, you can significantly prolong their life like you couldn't before.
2: That's right. In fact, the ni- not, another nice thing about some of these targeted therapies and immunotherapy is you can use them in people whose performance status doesn't allow chemotherapy. So in other words, if someone is not is really bothered by their cancer and they could no, they could, there's no way they could take chemotherapy or they'd be even sicker, the immunotherapy or the targeted therapy in particular is much more tolerated. It's oral medication.
3: When it comes to screening... Um- that's an opportunity to find cancers that aren't affecting the overall health of the patient yet. It hasn't made them sick enough yet. So are you finding false positives with some of those nodules? Is great, that happening?
2: Great question. It is a significant issue, and people need to be aware of that everybody almost is going to have a, fo- a false positive. We're going to have little shadows that we see, and we're going to have to follow them.
1: So is this the nodules?
2: Yeah. In the screening trial, the over 90-plus percent of the uh, CTs were abnormal.
1: So that creates a problem for you, doesn't it? It. Well, do you have to decide, am I going to biopsy this or am I going yeah. to watch it? And- I
2: need to clarify. Not 90% are abnormal. Over 90% of what we found was benign. So let me clarify. So, the, yes, you have to follow these if you find a benign nodule to see whether they grow or change. That's why we have to do low-dose CT because they're going to have numerous CTs if we find a little shadow or a nodule that's suspicious. So in these
1: patients who get multiple uh, follow-up CT scans, you're not concerned too much about that causing cancer. Not You're not concerned about too much radiation because it's a low dose.
2: And it's later in life. If these were... Three year olds, six year olds, young people who are getting all these uh, radiographic exposures, and then we'd worry, but not at our age.
1: All right, Dr. Eric Adele, he's an expert on lung cancer and he tells us she got to avoid smoking. Mm-hmm. Uh, radon, he doesn't like that. Second Number two. Secondhand smoke, too. Yes, yeah, secondhand smoke, marijuana, and electronic cigarettes. Dr. Adele, great to have you on the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Tom.
3: Coming up on Mayo Clinic Radio, three common household health hazards that you can't smell, taste, or see. We'll tell you what they are and how to protect against them.
1: And if you've been diagnosed with pre-diabetes, does it automatically mean you'll get diabetes? We'll have the answer from a Mayo Clinic expert.
3: Some of our guests are recorded during Periscope sessions. Get the Periscope app for iOS or Android. Follow Mayo Clinic and join us when we Periscope. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu.
1: Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams, You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. The world of medicine is complex. Researchers continuously find new ways to diagnose and treat disease. With so much information being generated, how do healthcare providers and consumers keep up? One way is to refer to guidelines drafted by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and other organizations. There are guidelines for many different diseases and conditions. Here's Mayo Clinic internal medicine specialist, Dr. Denise Dupra. There's a lot of guidelines published about how to practice medicine, um, what to screen for, not to screen for. Dr. Dupras says guidelines play an important role in helping doctors treat and care for patients, but guidelines don't always apply to everyone. You have to be very, very careful in who you apply the guidelines to. For instance, breast cancer screening guidelines refer to a woman at average risk of breast cancer. So Dr. Duper says if your mom had breast cancer, then you are not at average risk. You're at increased risk and may need to be screened more often or differently than guidelines recommend. The other thing is guidelines never take the place of that one-on-one discussion. Between the patient and healthcare provider, Dr. Duper says guidelines are a good thing and very important, but doctors should consider the needs of each individual patient. And now let's talk about fitness. You know fitness is important, but it's tough to fit in. Here are some ways to move more every day. Get up early and take a walk. Do chores. Be active while you watch TV. You know, stretch, use weights, ride a stationary bike, or take the dog for a walk. All are good ways to help you stay healthy. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheid. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Tracy, we all want to do whatever we can to make our homes as safe as possible, not only for us but for our kids and maybe sometimes even our in-laws. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> we install smoke detectors and railings and outdoor lighting and maybe even a security system. But what about protecting against things that we can't see, smell, taste, or even feel? Three hazards can occur in many of our homes, which,
3: if not detected and eliminated, can lead to serious illness and possibly death. We're talking about carbon monoxide, radon, and lead. The first two are odorless and invisible gases, and lead in paint and the soil is also not obvious without testing.
1: Here to talk about these common household health hazards is Dr. Laura Breer. Dr. Breer is an occupational medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Breer. Good to have you back.
3: Thanks for having me. Yeah, the last time that you were here, we were talking about lead because of the lead in the water over in Michigan, in Flint, Michigan. And in the course of that conversation, we said, you know, there's other things that can harm you in your home that you don't even know are there, like radon and carbon monoxide.
4: That's true. And, you know, especially radon doesn't get a lot of publicity. I think carbon monoxide is becoming um, more widespread in the news and people are talking about it more. But radon is one of those things that you don't think about until you hear about someone that's had a problem with it.
3: Is it because it's not doesn't happen as much, or why is radon kind of falling off the map? Um,
4: I think you know, as you said, it's colorless, it's odorless, and it's not something that um, kills people instantly. You know, we hear about carbon monoxide, someone leaving the car running in the garage, and um, tragic events where someone dies however radon can take many many years for the exposures to happen and many years later before you would develop health effects like lung cancer
1: what are the effects how would how how do you know if there might be too much radon in your home other than having it tested
4: so really the only way you would identify that there's elevated radon in your home is by testing it. Um, radon is a decay product of uranium that is present in soil and rock and it's present in all 50 states so you know, nobody's nobody's immune to radon. I even have some personal experience with this. Several years ago, we were buying a home and selling a home. And when we purchased our new home, they did testing and they, they found that the radon was 15, which is almost four times the EPA limit for how high radon should be. And I thought, oh, that's terrible. This family has lived in this home for 20 years. And They've been exposed to this radon, and they put in a mitigation system before we moved in. Then we sold our house back in Iowa. <laughs> we had our house tested at the request of the buyer and, that we'd lived in for greater than 10 years, and our levels were even higher oh my than gosh. the gosh! in the home we bought. Yeah. So
3: should everybody test their home for radon?
4: I think they should. Mm -hmm. I think they should. You know, I think that the main risk of health effects from radon is lung cancer. And every year, over 20,000 people die from lung cancer that's attributed to radon exposure. Is that
1: right? Because it's supposedly the second leading cause of of cancer of the lung after smoking.
4: After smoking. And it's a higher risk than secondhand smoke, which gets a lot of publicity.
1: Really? Um, So we ought to be worried about it.
4: We ought to be worried about it. Mm -hmm. I actually looked uh, at the EPA website before I came and talked today and the number of deaths per year is higher than the number of deaths from drunk driving. Mm -hmm. Gosh. All right.
3: So everybody's going to get their homes tested after they hear this. Hopefully. How often should you repeat that test? Is it every 10 years or what? Just test it once and you're clear.
4: Um, It depends on if you find radon in your house or if you don't. So if you do find radon, you can put in a radon mitigation system, and they essentially depressurize the bottom of your house. So it creates a way for the radon to get out, and those radon mitigation systems actually have something on the side that you can see that you can tell if it's working or not.
3: And is this a test that I can do, or do I have to hire somebody to come and do it?
4: You can do both. So, you know, like most tests, you can go to Home Depot or Lowe's and pick up a test and administer it yourself. You can also purchase very inexpensive tests there's a national radon program and you can purchase tests for $15 to perform in your house and then send them off to a trusted laboratory and get the results that way that's what i would do if i were testing again
3: let's move over to carbon monoxide yep how do you know if there's carbon monoxide in your home
4: really the only way to know if there's carbon monoxide in your home is by having a carbon monoxide detector which will go off much like a fire alarm if the if it senses elevated levels of carbon monoxide Um, So typically, it's recommended that you have a carbon monoxide detector on each floor of your home and within 10 feet of any bedrooms, Um, because when you're sleeping, you wouldn't necessarily notice symptoms that could be related to carbon monoxide, like nausea or lightheadedness, um, symptoms that a lot of us would attribute to something else anyway.
3: Does every member of the family, anybody that's living there, gets those symptoms? Or is it kind of individuals succumb a little differently?
4: not necessarily Um, I think it's individual it depends on your exposure you know if it's if the source of carbon monoxide is from a furnace that's leaking and not operating properly and I might have symptoms whereas my husband would not other things can contribute like age for example Babies and infants are more susceptible to the effects of carbon monoxide than adults are, which is very dangerous because they can't speak up and say, hey, I don't feel good.
1: Um, what are uh, so, some risk factors? What, if you had an old furnace, might be one. Uh, is it re- reason to check your carbon monoxide? What else in the home could cause an elevated level?
4: So, So many things in the home that... Almost every home has can cause an elevated level of fireplaces if they aren't vented properly or if there's something partially blocking the um, flue can increase levels of carbon monoxide. Gas stoves can cause increased levels of carbon monoxide, which is why it's recommended that if your heat goes out, you don't heat your house by turning on your oven and opening the door. Anything really that causes combustion in the house, like a Gas space heater, uh, wood burning fireplace. So it's so prevalent that it's really recommended that every household have carbon monoxide detectors.
1: I'm a little foggy on exactly what happens, but it, it has something to do with the oxygen carrying capacity of hemoglobin, right? Yes.
0: And the, and the carbon <laughs>
1: monoxide binds to the, to the, uh, hemoglobin and in, it in, in knocks the oxygen off so your tissues don't get oxygenated. Is that what happens? Pretty much. Pretty yep. close. Huh? Oh, pretty good, good job. for a yeah, surgeon. Good job with that.
3: Good job with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is serious, and it always seems to happen in the winter. There's some tragic case of somebody who their furnace goes out and then... All of these steps, like you just mentioned, they start using some gas space heaters. And
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, it can happen sooner than you know, because there's no symptoms.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good.
3: All right, let's finish up talking about lead. I've heard so many people, politicians, just this morning on the radio saying, we have to get lead pipes out of some of these buildings. And I thought, I'm not sure that's quite right. Is that right? If you've got the coating on the lead pipes, it doesn't matter. Is that right? Well,
4: you know, getting lead pipes out of buildings would be one solution, but, um, there are so many lead pipes all over throughout the United States, and it's not just lead pipes in buildings, it's, you know, lead pipes carrying the water supply into buildings. I think that, you know, we would, we would be tearing up whole neighborhoods and cities if we tried to get rid of all the lead pipes.
3: So, what protects us from those lead pipes to keep the lead poisoning from happening?
4: The case that we talked about in Flint, Michigan last time, it was that the water that was coming into those homes wasn't treated properly, so it was more corrosive, and it kind of chewed off the lining of those pipes that had built up over years and years and years. I can't say for certain if there wasn't if there was elevated lead at all prior to that, because I think no one tested prior to that, but it does substantially increase the risk, and... It eliminates that barrier between the lead pipe and the water flowing through it.
1: Yeah, But in general, if you have lead pipes in your house, it's not a major concern.
4: I think just like carbon monoxide, it's worth testing for some reassurance and then retesting if anything changes, like the water supply changes or the color of your water changes or you start having symptoms. Can you buy
3: a lead lead test for to test your water?
4: You can buy a lead test to test your water.
1: (laughs) See (laughs) I gotta stop at the hardware store.
4: You can stop by my house, I have an extra (laughs) I got a two pack. (laughs) I I have some So you
1: tested for lead at your home.
4: I do. Do you
1: have have lead pipes?
4: I assume that we do have lead pipes. We have a very old home that's over a mm. hundred years old. We also tested and you're for okay? you're okay. So far, so good. Yeah.
1: Radon in your house? No.
4: Um, we tested for radon before we moved in, also, and that was fine. Although we tested in the spring, and I'll probably do another test again this winter now that the house has been closed up just for some extra reassurance. Reassurance.
1: Yeah, you're pretty clean, though. I think you're going to live forever. You think I'm going to live forever?
4: I don't know. I don't know. We try. It's so inexpensive to fix. We might as well do it and reduce the risk.
3: Thanks, Dr. Breer, for filling us in on these common household health threats, carbon monoxide, radon, and lead. Dr. Laura Breer is an occupational medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Breer. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, managing prediabetes before it becomes diabetes. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. There are, it is estimated, 86 million, that's almost 90 million people in this country who have prediabetes. And 90% of the people who have prediabetes don't know it. The AMA, the CDC, the American Diabetes Association, and then the Ad Council are all teaming up to urge Americans who have prediabetes risk factors to get tested but what are those
3: risk factors and just what is prediabetes? And if you have prediabetes, does it automatically mean that you'll get diabetes?
1: Here to answer those and other questions about prediabetes is Dr. Robert Rizza. Dr. Rizza is an endocrinologist, a diabetes expert and former president of the American Diabetic Association. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rizza. Thanks, Good Tom. to have you. Thanks, Tom. So prediabetes, it means that you don't really have it yet, but you're
5: set up to get it. Is that about right? Well, it is about right, but of course. Tom it always comes down to the definition of of diabetes. And so it's like being, you know, pre-hypertensive or or pre-this or pre-that. So the definition of diabetes is when your blood sugar is greater than 125 milligrams per DL or your glycosylated hemoglobin, that's a test that doctors measure your chronic control. It's so over 6.5%.
1: All right, 1, 125, the magic number. And I'll Below tell
5: you, it? okay. I'll tell you in a second. So okay. you, those are the two numbers. All right, I don't want to rush you. No, no, you're a good man, good man. <laughs> you know, so, that's, so that's, that's diabetes. Now, normal blood sugars, when you take people who are absolutely normal, who have a very low risk of diabetes, is between 80 and 100 and an A1C of less than 5.7%. These are the two numbers which would measure different things. So that means if your sugars are between 100 and 125, there's 125 over, you got diabetes, under 100 you don't. That's what's called pre-diabetes. Okay. And the reason your blood sugars are in that 100 to 125 range is that your pancreas can't quite secrete enough insulin to get your blood sugars down so you're a setup. And but does it necessarily mean that you'll get it if you continue your present lifestyle? Well, I mean the, the data differ depends upon where you are, which population. But if you take the average person in America, if you have prediabetes, your chances of progressing to get diabetes, if you don't do something, between 50 and 75 percent. So the point is that it's not 100 percent, but you're, you're you're very high risk. Yeah, obviously. So, who
1: is at risk? Who are these people that uh, uh, 86 million of them who fit
5: into this category? What do they look like? What's their sure. family history, et cetera? Well, diabetes is the classic example of the interaction between genes and environment. You obviously can't choose your parents, you know, but you can influence your environment. So, certain things that are, that are genetic, and again, there's so much about this we don't know, there are certain ethnic groups you know, they seem to be at higher risk for diabetes. People who live in in, from the Indian subcontinent, people from Asia, people from the Middle East, African-Americans, Hispanics, and nobody really knows why this is, seem to have for a given level of body weight a greater risk of diabetes. On the other hand, Almost anybody, as they become more sedentary and are just sitting around more, such as you and I are doing right now.
0: You Inactivity. Know, in, in, in,
5: well, no, it's different. I mean, that's oh. the fascinating thing. I mean, who would have thought this? So, so literally sitting around, sedentary lifestyle versus activity. If, I can, if I'm active part of the day but sitting the rest of the day, I have a problem. So they're independent. Nobody thought of that. Also fitness. So if if I have a certain, if if I'm overweight or obese, that makes my body need more insulin. If I'm sedentary, you know, if, if I'm inactive, if I'm not fit, you know, then I'm a setup for getting diabetes. And, of course, a lot of us in this world right now are inactive, overweight, sedentary. Yeah, you know, which is the problem. And that's why the, the figure 86 million, it's why it's so big. It's probably an underestimate. I mean, if you really? Really, well, really want to get into this, I mean, this <laughs> is a matter of how do people measure these things. You know, because you can define prediabetes from a fasting blood sugar versus doing a glucose tolerance test. We won't get into that. It's just a way of stressing in A1C. And you will get different numbers because different people have different problems in the way they regulate the metabolism. But forget the 90 million. It just says a lot of us, are setups for diabetes. We need we need to do something so we don't get this disease. It's a bad disease. You take care of it, you're fine. You don't take care of it, you've got a problem. So you want to be sure you take care of it.
3: And the the issue is that, forget about the prediabetes part, but by the time that your symptoms would get you to a point where you go to say, right. something's wrong with me, doctor, right.
5: you're way past the prediabetes part, correct? No, that's correct, Ray. So the idea would be, Now, like like people say, if my blood sugar is high, I can feel it. If that were true, that would be absolutely wonderful. But the point is you can't feel when your blood sugars are high. So it's not until your sugars are really high. And many times for a long time where a lot of damage has been done to your eyes, your kidneys, your heart, that you know about it. That's why you get the sugar measured so you can pick this thing up way before there are problems. Because I keep saying you take care of diabetes, including your blood sugar, your blood pressure, your blood lipids. You do fine.
1: And it is truly interesting how many patients come into the hospital with gangrene of their toes you or know, the, half of their foot, and they never knew they had diabetes. Tragedies, just absolute tragedies for exactly what you're saying.
5: Absolutely right.
3: So is this something uh, that should just be part of a standard checkup that your blood, you're just checking to see where your blood sugars are at?
5: Well, it's one of the great parts about being interviewed. In my opinion, absolutely, yes. <laughs> you know, and, and you see, the thing about pre-dive, we talk about screening and screen- like get an issue about what you pick up and false positives, false negatives, without getting into that, the point is, when you measure your blood sugar that's both a screening and a diagnostic test so this is a real easy one you know so if you measure your blood sugar and it's normal you know great if you measure measuring butcher and it's increasing particularly as the years go on, that's extremely important for you and your doctor to know. So it's a good test to do, you don't have to do it every 20 minutes, but probably once a year or something like this would be of value. But the other thing is that it also, diabetes lives with other things because this is all centered around, now I'm talking about type 2 diabetes, this is a very important distinction. Type 1 is a disease which is, is also increasing but not nearly the same as type 2. And This is where your system, your immune system destroys your insulin screen. cells. This is not associated with obesity, it's a whole different process of type 2. But but it lives with high blood pressure lives with sleep apnea, lives with you know knee problems, hip problems, problems such as you see. So it lives among certain things. When you, people have got all these other things it's a good place to be checking your blood sugar because that may well be what's going on as well.
1: But the important thing also to emphasize is that uh, if your blood sugar is somewhere between 100 and 125 you're in the pre-diabetes range. Right. You can avoid becoming a diabetic, to avoid getting above 125 by lifestyle changes right. and that basically is keeping your weight down
5: and Exercise. Right. So if you take individuals who are both lean and fit, now go back to 1920, 1910, you know, back, you know, 100 years ago, our genes haven't changed or haven't changed much. The prevalence of this disease was 2 or 3%. Now, because we are overweight, we're more sedentary, this prevalence of disease over 40, one in three people will get diabetes. So if you get lean, get fit, now of course it's not easy, you know, but as you move backwards, each pound you lose, you know, each minute you're walking, this doesn't mean climb Mount Everest, this means walking. You do better. All right. Dr. Robert Rizza, former president of the American Diabetes
1: Association, an endocrinologist, diabetes specialist, always great to have you on the program thanks so much that's our program for this week for more information about topics discussed today visit us on the web at mayo clinic news network where you can access a podcast of today's show previously aired programs and the latest news from mayo clinic
3: tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag mayo clinic radio
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org.